episode 50 of the Tactical Breakdown podcast. Today, we're diving into the science behind training development. Let's get into it. Welcome to the Tactical Breakdown, a podcast for law enforcement, military, and emergency response professionals. Stand by. Where we help you bridge the gap and talk training, tactics, and leadership with the best subject matter experts in the world. Here is your host, Adam Kanakin. Welcome to Tactical Breakdown. This is a very special episode, episode 50. Episode number 50 here on the podcast, and it's, uh, wow, it's been a hell of a ride so far, Um, and there's nobody else that I would rather have on this episode with me than my friend, Mr. Chris Butler. Now, you probably know Chris already. If you're in law enforcement training, you know exactly who he is. Um, He is an amazing instructor, works with Force Science. He is one of the top use of force experts in the world. And um, when I talk about instructional development, he is he's my go to. He is my Yoda. Um, when I have any questions about training development, he's the guy I go to. And um, I wouldn't have anybody else on this episode with me, especially since that's the purpose of the Tactical Breakdown podcast is to to share knowledge and information for instructors and trainers and coaches not just in law enforcement, but through all emergency professions and in the military, both active duty and veteran members. So one of the things I do want to do here before we jump into this episode with Chris is pass along a massive thank you to you for being here, for keeping with us on this podcast, for helping us get to 50 episodes. It has been one hell of a ride and um, there's going to be so much more coming down the pipe here for you, not only in 2020, but 2021 and beyond the amount of partnerships the amount of collaborations that we have been able to develop with these amazing instructors and partners and corporations and organizations all around the world it really truly is exciting and hopefully we can continue to drive the quality of training in law enforcement higher and higher the more and more we get the opportunity to share information and knowledge on platforms just like this so Thank you so much for being a part of what we do. Let's jump into this episode I had with Mr. Chris Butler and uh, talk about some training development. Let's get into it. All right, Chris, brother, I'm so glad we got a chance to have you on as a one-on-one guest for the podcast, man. Thanks for taking the time. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Adam. Yeah, so we had you on the, uh, the round table the very first round table that we did back in January for uh, use of force and defensive tactics training. And uh, what did you think of that whole process, man? What did you think of that conversation? And, and did you get anything out of that? Yeah, I actually, uh, I did. I've gone back and I've, you know, because it's interesting when you're doing something like that, um, y- your attention is mostly internal. So you're thinking about, um, you know, the topic and, and the important points that you want to say and how you're going to say it. And, and so after, after that was over, I thought, well, I need to go back and just watch that, uh, first of all, to make sure that what I said was intelligible and, and I got across the points I wanted. And, and it was interesting as I'm watching it, I'm like, ah, yeah, I have 
I don't have any recollection of when Blauer said that or when Bostain said that. And so I rewatched it again. And I think I've rewatched it maybe three or four times just be, to, to mine out all of the great comments that Scott and, and Tony and, and John said. So I really enjoyed uh, the process, but I think more than that, I enjoyed the content after having the opportunity to just go out and pull all their insightful comments. So it was really good. Yeah, I was the same way. I mean, obviously on my end, because I'm not only am I trying to pay attention to the conversation, but at the same time, I'm working all the stuff on the back end with the live stream and everything. So my mind was racing a million miles a minute, even when we were done. And this happens almost after every roundtable, but we get done and I'm so mentally exhausted that I have to like just I, I basically save everything and I shut everything down and I go and I sit up on the couch and just veg out and fall asleep because I'm, my brain is just so mentally exhausted from that four hours almost of just just back and forth and, and you're juggling a hundred different things at once. Yeah. But the yeah. content, the content was so like, I mean, it, here's the thing, and this is why I love doing it and I was so honored to have you be part of it and, and those guys and all the ones that we've done since. Because you get four of the top people in the world talking about topics that they're passionate about. The the knowledge the, is just so much. There's so much gold there that it's you have to go back and, like you said, mine it out. Because, you know, listening to it once you get one thing, but you go back in the next time you're like, oh, I totally missed that. And then again, oh, I totally missed that. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's, I completely agree with you. And it was really, really cool to to be able to have the opportunity to do that with you. So thank you. Oh, it was a pleasure. I would do that again in a heartbeat anytime. Yeah, well, we're, you know, I've had a ton of feedback about that first one with the use force and defensive tactics. So we're probably going to have to do another one down the road here. I don't know if we're going to have all the same people, but uh, but we're definitely going to have to run a run that one back for the simple fact that you can't you can't discuss everything that needs to be discussed in three hours. Right. So, I mean, uh, it's it's really interesting talking about training at this kind of level, which brings me into kind of the next talking point. And something that I was really excited to hear you mention was that you've developed this new training program for law enforcement trainers and instructors. You know, I've been a big proponent of going outside the box and learning from different people, learning from different instructors and trainers, not just in law enforcement, but in in all the different specialties and things like that around the world. That's like your thing. And I know in speaking with you with the last couple months and, you know, ever since we started talking is you go out of your way to get information, get academic studies, talk to instructors and say, hey, what are you doing right? What's going wrong? How can we make this better? So can you give us a little bit of a background about this course that you've developed and, and kind of how it came about? So how it came about? Well, first of all, I, I actually need to back up even before my law enforcement career started to sort of go to the origins of this. And um, I, bef- before I became a cop, I was a search and rescue technician for six years in, uh, in the Rocky Mountains here in Alberta. And my particular role was high angle rescue. We did a lot of helicopter rescue. We did cable rope rescue, vertical rescues off mountain faces, climbers, um, swift water rescue, avalanche rescue. And in, during my time as a SAR tech, one of the things that uh, became very apparent to me early on is that we had situations, we had a number of near misses where, you know, only but by the grace of God, nothing bad happened, um, but could have. But it, it caused me and uh, a couple of the other Sartex to think about 
human performance and, and in these rapidly unfolding, unstable, ambiguous, high consequence types of environments, why were we prone to making which seem to be very uh, silly errors in a, in a multitude of different ways and our performance during a rescue was sometimes not what we had expected it to be consistent with so-called how we were supposedly trained. And so that began my early exploration of what's called the study of human factors, um, beginning to look at the research outside of search and rescue and into some other fields, aerospace, aviation, the medical field, the military, and looking at a lot of the expert research and study on how to actually train human beings for predictable performance in high stress, high consequence events. And so that began my, my interest and my passion in that. When I left search and rescue and became a police officer, the, the context changed from search and rescue to municipal policing. But what didn't change is the principles of human factors were identical. In other words, we were looking at, and as you well know, you've got human beings as police officers that are suddenly, spontaneously thrust into circumstances where they may only have seconds or fractions of a second to make a decision, a high consequence decision that may or may not cost the officer their lives. There's high stress involved. They're rapidly unfolding. And so the impact of human factors on the principal basis is exactly the same. In other words, how do we teach police officers to have predictable performance operationally on the street in these encounters? And Early on in my law enforcement career, I observed and experienced personally several disconnects between what was supposedly being trained in the academy and in service and how myself and other officers actually responded operationally. In other words, the performance on the street very often in high-stress encounters was not matched to how we were supposedly trained. And so... When, when I got into the academy full-time as an instructor in 1998, I had the great privilege, my sergeant at the time, Brian Willis, and I think you know him well, Brian Willis was the sergeant in the training section, and he, he, his passion was in making sure that everything we taught officers was validated, that it was based upon empirical research, that we looked at ways we could improve our training processes and methodology um, to help the officers. And, and then the next basically 15 years of my career, mostly full-time in the academy as, as a constable full-time trainer, and then as a sergeant in the academy, and then as a staff sergeant in charge of the academy, all of those years, my passion was going outside of policing into the other fields, the other disciplines that were around us, where, where you know, the irony is, Adam, that a lot of these experts in, in these other disciplines, I mean, there's people with PhDs who spend their lives studying human performance and motor learning and coaching and teaching and, and how to teach human beings to perform effectively in, in these environments. And law enforcement has been remarkably slow 
to go outside of our own silos and our own culture to see all of the uh, lessons and uh, experiences that we can bring in to do that. And and so to answer your, it is a long way of answering your question, but, but that's the background on it. Um, I have put together, basically distilled the last 10 years of, of my life in studying and reading the research and my own training methodologies and refining it, reaching out to other experts around the world that I greatly respect and, and think they have a lot to offer and bringing that in. And so that sort of the, was the genesis of this four-day law enforcement instructor certification course was to bring all of that that applicable science and the research into a course that would be very applied for the student. In other words, we, we do talk about a lot of uh, academic research. We talk about a lot of learning theory in it, but it all ends up being applied. In other words, there's a big so what piece in every module in the course so that the, the, the student, the trainer at the end of it, understands the human factor science, understands the context of it, has uh, a good idea of the foundation of how to bring that knowledge into their training and build it into their training and how it would change them as an instructor uh, to help improve their students. And uh, so that's the basis of it. That's the background. And that's the goal of the course. I was super excited to hear that there's you've developed this such a, an in-depth instructor trainer course. And I think that's severely lacking and not just in law enforcement training, but across the board when, you know, people say, oh, here's your instructor. uh, Here's your instructor course. Here's your 40 hours. Here's your textbook. Um, We're going to test you on all this at the end of it. Make sure you know it. And uh, and there there you go. Now you're an instructor. Congratulations. And here's your class. Get at it. And, uh, you know, that happens way too often. And can we what like what are your thoughts on that? Why is that still happening? And is this. Is this course that you've developed, is this kind of like the first step in saying, hey, listen, we need to start making sure that our instructors are at a whole nother level before we start having them train new officers? Yeah, well, I, I agree with what you're saying. And that that really is, a, I think, a complex question as to why it is. I mean, I think anybody in law enforcement would agree that there are deep cultural um foundations for the way law enforcement does certain things and it's a lot of just based on history and tradition this is the way that we've always we've always done it and so that's what we do um there isn't a very aggressive posture on looking at being research-led and science-led and now i'll say that cautiously because i do know there are some agencies that are that are very progressive i had the privilege of of teaching a course in December of last year out in Toronto at the Toronto Police College. And uh, I was very encouraged by just the excellence of their instructors and their humility and their openness to be challenging themselves and and looking at new ways of incorporating the research and science into what they're doing there. So I think there are some some islands of agencies where, and it all comes down to leadership, I think ultimately is what's the leadership in the academy. Do you have a leader that is really uh, servant hearted uh, and recognizes that their role in the academy is not to serve themselves and and the role of the trainers is not to serve themselves, but the entire goal of being there is to make the students 
better because, you know, we do understand the concept that we don't rise to the occasion. We fall to the level of our training. And, and I've often said it, Adam, quite literally, a law enforcement instructor does have the life of their student in their hand. And how they train that officer is how that officer is going to perform. And if the training is, is poor, if the content is wrong and the training is poor, then how that officer is going to respond operationally is likely to be quite catastrophic. But if the training is validated, if it's, if it's um, correct training based on an, a review of the threat environment, and the training skills themselves are taught correctly by instructors who understand the principles of motor skill development, motor learning, judgment-based learning, instructional techniques, different types of feedback models to ensure the student is is deeply learning these concepts, the design of high-fidelity or scenario-based training correctly implemented um, to walk the student through that growth process of exercising those critical skills in context-based scenarios, then you end up with an officer who's very likely to perform quite well operationally on the street. So I think um, culture is an issue. Leadership is an issue. The, The other challenge for a lot of academies and a lot of agencies is there isn't much of an emphasis in what I've observed on instructor development. And so what happens a lot of times is you'll, you select an instructor to come in into the academy based on their personal abilities, their skills. And so, for example, you might have like an officer who's a fantastic jujitsu guy and everybody knows like, you know, this officer, he can handle himself on the street. He's excellent at jujitsu and he's got an interest in going into the training section. And so the app, the competition goes out, the officer applies, everybody wants him in the training section because he's so switched on and so skilled. But what does he know about instructing other human beings? What does he know about the science of motor learning and how you actually break skills down and teach it? And so I'm not saying we shouldn't bring those people into the academy, but I think one of the biggest gaps that we do have is there's almost no emphasis on teaching the instructor how to instruct. And that's really what this course is that I've put together. It's, it's four days of how do you incorporate the science and research around motor learning principles, motor skills, human factors. How do you do design of your curriculum? How do you teach it? How do you interleave it versus block instruction, you know, the types of of feedback that you give? How do you incorporate exercise into your training in order to optimize learning? You know, there's a ton of research out there on the specific types of exercise and when they should be introduced into training in order to create the optimal sort of neurochemical bath in the learner's brain for for learning and long-term retention. And um, it, it doesn't cost you anything to do it, and it can be implemented very easily. But I think most instructors don't understand that. And so, for example, what you, you know, you'll see often is they'll take recruits out on these ridiculous long, long runs and run, run them into the ground, or they'll do extremely 
arduous exercise regimens and push the recruits to the or the officers to the point of exhaustion and then go in and do training whether that's classroom like didactic type training or or physical skill training and what the research tells us is that's just horrible uh what you've actually done is you have greatly reduced the ability of the officer's brain or the learner's brain to actually learn new material and to be able to retain it long term and so when you do things like that you actually end up with the shortest the the least learning and the shortest possible retention of that but there are ways to incorporate high intensity type of exercise into the training regimen that does exactly the opposite that sets up the officer the learner's brain for optimal learning and the best retention long term and so there's lots of these issues that i think instructors have to know and it goes way beyond just the personal skill tactical skill of the trainer you can be the best firearms guy in the world and i don't care how good you are with a gun but if you don't understand all of the concepts of how you teach that critical skill to your learner it doesn't matter how good you are these two things have to go together the competency with the skill but perhaps even more importantly the ability to teach that skill effectively to your learner as i'm listening to you talk the more i think about this this statement the more i'm positive it came from brian and one of um, one of his instructor courses that I attended and it is the best, the best players don't always make the best coaches. You know, I think that goes to exactly what you're saying is, you, you know, you could be the most high speed, you switched on operator, but at the end of the day, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be the best person to teach somebody how to accomplish those skills, right? Chances are that the person that taught you isn't as good at, if, if you're really, really, really good, right? You think of like Olympic athletes. They're the best. They're the best in the world. Their coaches aren't competing, but their coaches have the ability to get that person to be their best. You know, that was a hard lesson for me to learn. And I've talked about this before on the show, but that was the hardest lesson for me to learn is that I'm not there to show you what I can do. I'm there to teach you what you can do. And learning that how to teach people was the hardest thing for me when I became an instructor. And I think I got into being an instructor too early because I didn't have that background. And now obviously hindsight's 2020, but trying to figure out how we can prevent those types of situations from happening where we're putting people in these positions where maybe they're not the best suited because let's face it, not every instructor is going to have a master's degree in education. How do we get those really important bits of knowledge and, and make sure that it's ingrained in instructors before we start trying to get them to run these courses? I mean, obviously now you have your course that everybody should be clamoring to to get access to but if we were to talk certain skill sets that instructors should have what do you think those skill sets are and and how do they get access to them so are you are you referring to like an inherent skills that instructors bring with them or skills that they they need to be taught in order to be a good instructor yeah a learned skill to to learn how to teach they could be amazing. They could be amazing shooter. They could be amazing jits person, a player. They're, they could be amazing on the ground. They could be amazing at doing all of these different types of things. But and and outside of defensive tactics as well. I mean, you talk about any specialty that officers would have in in throughout their careers. What 
what learning, like what types of learning do these officers need to focus on so that they can get better? Actually, this brings up something that you had mentioned previously, and it's that there's no real instructor development or sometimes there isn't an instructor development. And we, you know, we look at accreditation programs in other industries and to be accredited for that industry, there are ongoing learning components that you have to meet. Otherwise, your accreditation gets pulled because you haven't kept up to date with everything that's happening. Why isn't that in law enforcement right now? Why or not just law enforcement, but, you know, military emergency response and all those all of these types of fields that accreditation type of continuous learning isn't a requirement. Is that something that we should be looking at implementing? I Well, I think absolutely we should be. But here's the challenge, Adam. And as you know, in Canada, policing, there's no federal oversight of policing generally. Uh, Policing is left up to each the provincial governments of each of our provinces to look after policing. There's no oversight. I mean, there's oversight groups of police conduct and police act regulations in all our provinces, but there is no oversight and accreditation, learning and certification program for law enforcement instructors. There's no governance anywhere that I'm aware of in our in our country for that. I mean, we have police colleges and, and things like that that run instructor trainer courses, um, but there's no consistent oversight of that. It's interesting in certain certain states in, in the United States, they, they actually, you have to be certified as a law enforcement instructor. So you have to take a methods of instruction certification course. And like you say, maintain that certification, stay up on the material. You have to demonstrate that you've taught a certain number of hours of these skills every year in order to maintain your certification. Um, but we don't have any oversight that I'm aware of like that at all in Canada. It certainly would be certainly would be a helpful thing for law enforcement to have some more higher level of governance over law enforcement instruction um, to be able to do that. You know, that's one of the things that when I looked at building out this, this course that I developed is looking at those critical skills that a, a trainer has to have. And so, for example, in this four-day course, we actually don't talk about any specific technique in other words, well, you know, that that balance displacement technique is better than this balance displacement technique or or that type of handcuffing is better than this type of handcuffing. We don't go down that road because that's not the point of this course. The point of this course is to help the students understand um, the, the neuroscience of learning. So we look at the mind model. We're going to we look at cognition, Kahneman's work on for example, thinking fast and slow, how does our understanding of that, those cognitive processes and decision-making impact officer perception, officer attention, officer performance? How do we then teach officers these critical, break down these motor skills and motor learning in, 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 into a system that can be uh, taught respecting those, those limitations of those human factors and the types of decision-making. Um, and, uh, and so we've looked at all of these critical skills. And so on, on this course, for example, what the student will have been exposed to over the four days is, is approximately 40 
peer-reviewed research papers that touch on very applicable aspects of human factors to training and learner performance, as well as we're going to explore um, four major academic textbooks on um, cognition, decision-making, motor learning, and performance uh, throughout the week, and, and make it very, very applied, very applicable. So um, that's the goal of, of this course, is to at least have some basic foundation for instructors to be able to have the back, some more background knowledge and experience to be able to, to build and teach very effective uh, skills. So whether that's firearm skills, combative skills, or, or, or I hope, ultimately, obviously, the bringing of those two things together, uh, fighting with your firearm, um, which is, again, a whole, whole other issue, which uh, we need to really look at in, in law enforcement is actual training for combat encounters and fighting with our firearm. The, the other thing I want to, wanted to mention to you is we have what's called an illusion of learning in law enforcement. And this is, a, I think, a challenge and a particular blind spot for most trainers because, you know, when you get your student on, on the mat, say you're going to be teaching some physical skill for the day and they come in, you get them on the mats and you train them all day and you train them and train them. And at the end of the day, you see their performance has gone from quite low at the beginning of the day. And at the end of the day, you see them doing what you want them to do and they're performing quite well. And I think most trainers would look at that when the students leave at the end of the day and go, wow, they really learned a lot because we saw that that improvement throughout the day. But the irony in that is the research shows exactly the opposite is um, motor learning takes place not during the training event. And, and this seems so counterintuitive, even to me. And I've read all the research on it and I'm like, really? But really? You know, but you read the research that, and, and elite level athletics understand this. They've used this principle of this type of decision training and um, inter- introducing uh, what's, you know, called desirable difficulties or challenges for the learner and guided failure. There's another concept that's foreign is allowing your learner actually to fail, not and not just for the purpose of failing during training, but guided failure where when they don't perform correctly is what type of feedback model does the instructor then use in order to allow the learner themselves to identify what they should have done, what they did wrong, and what they need to do to correct it. But I think most trainers use what's called an augmented feedback where they will go in and they will stop the the training and they will tell the trainer, the trainee, what, what was done wrong and what they need to do to correct it. And what the research shows is that's absolutely the, the worst, the worst way to learn motor skills and the worst way to learn judgment skills. Um, but that that is the primary way with which most law enforcement instructors do feedback in their training sessions. Um, but my, my earlier point of seeing the improvement over the course of the day, that illusion of learning, because what the research shows is that within a very short period of time after that training event is over, And so we're actually talking days or at the most, maybe two to four weeks after that training, the skill level of that officer that came into your class that day 
will go back down to the level it was when they first started the training that day within maximum two to four weeks afterwards. And, and because that's an illusion of learning. And so when, when we train officers effectively for long-term retention, so real learning and longer-term retention, what we actually see during the training event is those officers will not get as high of a level of demonstrated skill during the training event. Because we've introduced complex challenges, we've allowed for guided failure, we've used decision training models for feedback rather than augmented feedback. And so the trainer will look, sit back and look at that. And if you just on the face of it compared the levels of performance during the training class itself, the augmented feedback model where you corrected all the officers and told them what to do, their skill, you would see their skill during the training when they left at the end of the day being higher than the decision-based training group and the group that you allowed to have guided failure, guided error, they wouldn't be performing as well. But that's not when learning takes place. If you actually look at the timeline in the next four weeks after that training event is over, what you see, and the research shows multiple peer-reviewed research papers that show this, is the learning of that decision-based group actually increases for four weeks after the training event because of how the way that the hippocampus and the amygdala and, and the long-term learning consolidates and takes place in the learner's brain is dramatically better than that first group who their performance will drop way down to where they were at the beginning. So, Adam, these are all issues that we that we are going to look at on this course, and uh, they're critical things for for trainers to understand to optimize the learning in the officer. I love that you brought up the guided failure, and that was something that had come up in a, in another conversation that I had about with one of the guys from the uh, SEAL teams and how the Tier One operators do their training and. You know, and I've had some exposure to it with the Canadian forces. I mean, and and basically by that, I mean, obviously our training was nowhere near that level, but what, uh, not in the unit I was with anyways, but what, uh, one thing that stuck out to me was always the fact that the instructors didn't stop the training when somebody did something wrong. They would say, okay, fix it, move forward, fix it. And we'd continue with the simulation. We'd continue with the training until we were done. We'd finish everything off, we do an AAR, and then in the AAR, we would then discuss, okay, so this didn't go right, and then we talked about how things could have been done differently, um, but they never, they didn't just shut the training down right when something bad happened, or, I mean, unless there's a significant safety concern, but if it was just a, a mistake that the the trainee made, they never stopped the training. You had to work through your problem, which I think goes right back to what you were saying, is it it leads to your ability to start creating that thought process in your brain. Okay, what do I have to do next? What do I have to do next? And how can I do it? And I have always felt that after that training, I mean, I would go home and over the next week, two weeks would be thinking about that as, you know, oh man, what ah, I could have done that better or I could have done this better. Oh, I should have done this. I should have done that. And it was always on the top of my mind because I was like, I could have done that better. And I, and I don't think that's just me. I think there's a lot of learners that learn that way. Um, and that goes back to the research that you were just saying. And, and it's interesting to actually hear it 
come from somebody else and that that's a very important methodology when it comes to training uh, officers. And so I'm, uh, I'm really excited about that. I think that's really, really cool. Yeah, and you're right. And the research supports that type of training, Adam. I mean, if you look at the highest level of coaches, elite level athletic coaches and the highest level Olympic athletes, uh, the ones that perform the best and improve um, are the ones that use that type of training because we've got to get away from this so-called illusion of learning that we think just because we've seen our officers perform better during the day of training that somehow we've actually imparted some long-term learning to them because that the research shows that could just simply be not the case at all. And, and just a point on guided error because you brought that up and it is a critical piece. And now I, I just want to expand on it a bit because I don't want someone listening to this to think that you just allow someone to failure for to fail for just for the purpose of failure, you know. And because I rem- remember once watching an instructor talk after a building clearing scenario, and he was debriefing the officers, and he he was critical of one of the officers who spent so much too much time in the so-called fatal funnel in the hallway, and he said, you know, if you get shot there, you're dead, and. And, uh, and then basically, so that was just, that was the message. Like you screwed up and you spent too much time there. And if you get shot there, you're dead. And I was like, okay, well, how's that helpful? How, how did, what has been imparted to that officer to actually help him understand why he made the decisions he made that put him in that place and what different decisions should be made in order to improve performance because allowing someone to fail just so to demonstrate that they've really screwed up is not the goal. It's, it's guided. And so that you then talk about principles. So afterwards in your, in your AAR and your debrief and you're talking about principles and you'd say, so you remember we talked about hallways and, and someone remind me like, what, what, why did we say it's important to minimize our time in these transitional areas, right? Get that feedback from your group. Okay. So that's really important. So remember when you're moving from location to location and transitioning through these areas, we need to avoid stalling because of, of these issues. So when you find yourself there, what different decisions could you make in order to minimize your time in those transitional areas and then get that feedback from the group and then put them back in the scenario again? And that's the important thing really with high fidelity training is you never want to end your training where it's on like a real downer note where you've had a student or a performer uh, walk away uh, having just failed, having been told they failed, but not having the opportunity to put them back in. So that guided feedback where they have identified what they did wrong and what they need to do differently. Now run the scenario again and allow them to experience success. And that's what we want to end our training on. So it, yes, it's guided error, but it's always guided error for the purpose of guided success. And so that's, that's sort of a very important process. You want to end your training whenever possible on, on those. That makes a lot of sense. Is that something that should be built in then to, you know, if you're building out your training plan, you know, saying, okay, we're going to be running these dynamic scenarios 
and that's a whole other discussion is when you should you be running these dynamic scenarios in your training, um, beginning of the day, middle of the day, end of the day. But say you're there for whatever reason set up at the end of the day, leaving yourself some time. So if you know that, you know, everyone's going home at four or at five, you're not finishing so that, hey, we're going to finish this scenario at 445. We're going to debrief for 10 minutes, pack the stuff up and go. But leaving yourself some room so that you can, if you have to rerun it and um, and give people that that positive feedback. Yeah. Absolutely. That's a great point. And, and your earlier question about when to run scenarios. I mean, I'm going to, I make a strong argument that I believe is based upon good research that high fidelity training should be run at the end of the training, not at the beginning. And the reasons for that is, is because that type, when we activate that, especially when it's really high fidelity. So we're activating the sympathetic nervous system, really powering up the emotional centers of the brain, the hippocampus and that. And what will happen is when you run your your scenario training at the end of your training event, and then you're going to send your officers away, they're going to go home, whatever, go home, have dinner, and then eventually go to sleep, whatever, is what we know from the research is that type of very intense judgment-based learning is consolidated It the most the most strongly offline so again it's you can run and you should be running good debriefs and hitting those points but getting the officers to recognize for themselves what they need to do for the best performance let them have the opportunity to do it and then end your training and and send them home and then that's when what's called consolidation takes place afterwards offline and so, and we've all had that experience, right? You mentioned one after how uh, you go and you, you run it through your mind afterwards. And we've all gone through those scenarios and those situations where we'll even be lying in bed and all of a sudden jerk awake in the middle of the night. And you've got that. It comes to your mind again, like you're back in it. And that's a very powerful thing. What's actually happening when that occurs is memory consolidation. And so the most powerful long-term learning for the best retention takes place offline. But if you don't, if you run your scenarios early on in the day, and let's say you're going to run a a traffic stop scenario or building clearing scenario or whatever scenario you're running and you put it at the earlier in the day, and then you're going to teach some other skill like handcuffing, or you're going to do neck restraints or something like that. You can actually introduce what's called learning interference because now you're teaching a motor skill after a very emotional judgment-based scenario. And in the brain, that can create what's called learning interference, where it actually impairs the uh, depth um, and amount of the memory and learning that takes place from the, from the scenario. So as much as you can, I believe the research argues for teaching motor skills earlier on in the day and then leaving your scenario high fidelity blocks and put them in as blocks at the end of your, your training, uh, your training days. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And I mean, that's, it's something that it's, I've, I've learned about it. And every time I hear it, it's it's always that refresher. It's like, Oh yeah. Like why, why is it always that every time I do a course, this isn't being done. When we talk about instructor development, 
should there be portions in there when we talk about, I mean, a lot of times guys that are new in instructor training, whether they're a new, they get to a new group, um, they become, you know, an instructor in a certain area. They're not necessarily the ones that are developing new training plans. That was something that I had, I had the ability to do in the military was I was able to create training plans. And that was something that from day one, they're like, Hey, we want you to start doing this. It helped me a lot to build out the the plan from gra- ground zero, both with the components of the courses and how you're going to structure that over the course of a week, a month, a year, or multiple years. Do you think that's important for instructors to start getting a handle on early um, and learning how to build out complete training plans and the reasons behind it? Yeah, that's, that's a critical part of it, uh, building out that course training standard. And I say it's critical because... I believe that a course training standard has to start first with a rationale. So before you even say, this is the skill we're teaching and this is how we're going to teach it, you need to back up and say the the why. Why are we teaching this skill? And that's the whole rationale piece of of a properly structured course training standard. So, for example, if we're going to say, well, we're, we're going to teach, um, uh, ground fighting skills to our officers, then the rationale for that should be you should look at the threat environment and go, okay, because we know from the research that 85% of physical encounters with police officers, either with one subject or multiple subjects, 85% of those encounters will go to the ground. We know that this percentage of the population is skilled in uh, certain types of ground fighting and therefore officers need to have these types of skills on the ground to be able to defeat attacks, to be able to maintain control, and to be able to uh, control and handcuff subjects on the ground. Um, Because if you don't have that, if you don't have the rationale, it should cause you to go, why are we teaching this skill? And that's my first question I always ask of trainers. Like when I go into an academy and I was in uh, one state academy la- last year, last spring, and I was watching them teach their officers a certain skill. And uh, I asked the trainers, I said, why, why do you teach these officers this specific skill? And they really struggled to, to answer that question based upon a research-backed understanding of what the threat environment is. You know, we've only got so many hours in training to teach our officers their critical skills. If we're spending hours and hours to teach an officer a skill that they might use 5% of the time on the street, then we're not not doing a service to that officer. Now, obviously, we need to teach them firearms uses and effective use of firearms. So, and I get that, like the, the likelihood of any officer having to pull his gun and shoot somebody is a lot less probably than 5%, but we do have to teach that critical skill. I get that. But when we look at physical combatives, you know, we should really understand the threat environment and make sure our training standards have a rationale that is completely defendable based upon a realistic understanding of the threat environment And so I do agree with you. I think it's important that trainers need to know how to identify those skills, how to write out the proper methodology of how those skills are going to be taught, 
how to understand the progression of those skills, the methods of instruction. In other words, what, what type of methods of instruction do we use to teach each one of these skills? How do we break them down into blocks or components to teach them? What are the safety aspects, right? The safety pieces are huge, especially when we start to get into um, physical combative techniques and firearms training, scenario-based training, where there has to be safety considerations in all of this to look at how do we minimize the injuries and physical training? How do we ensure that accidents and firearms training do not occur? And so correctly identifying those in your course training standards, referencing all of the research in your training standard to say that this technique and and this method of instruction is based upon um, these texts and these research principles and these experts in this field. And all that makes a very defendable course training standard, which is important for a couple of reasons. One is for the trainer to to protect the trainer that can validate why we're training this skill and how we're training it and why, and also to protect the agency afterwards in uh, judicial inquiries, in fatality inquiries, those sorts of things in civil lawsuits, um, those course training standards will come in. I can tell you I've testified in many fatality inquiries as a use of force trainer, as a use of force expert, where I had to bring in all of our course training standards and articulate in the fatality inquiry or the coroner's inquest why we taught those skills, what they're based on, and why they were critical for for officers to have those particular skills. So the documentation piece, you're bang on. It's critical, and and trainers need to know how to do it. One thing that you just mentioned there, too, and it brings us back to the roundtable that we just kind of brought up at the beginning. Um, But this is one of the topics that came up, and everybody kind of discussed it, and it was the fact that you know, where should we be drawing the line when it comes to injury in training? Um, And should we be maybe pushing a little bit harder than we are right now? I mean, everybody wants to avoid injuries, obviously, but I mean, there's there's an old saying, cry in the dojo, laugh on the battlefield. And and essentially going back to, listen, if you're going to get hurt, I'd rather get hurt in training than have... The no skill and then have it cost me my life in the street. Do you think that we can find a better happy medium for training where, you know, maybe we do have officers that, you know, you roll an ankle, you know, tear something in your arm or something like that. And yes, there's a possibility. Obviously, that's not our goal, but there's a heightened possibility of it because of the dynamic level of the training. Could we, should we be doing more or should we kind of be making sure that the officers are completely safe at all times? I think there ha- there's a balance there. Um, so first of all, completely safe at all times is a myth. That's an unattainable target in any training environment where we are training a human being to operate in a very complex, violent, rapidly unfolding event. And so when we get injuries on the street because of officers in those encounters and, and like so for example 
on in a study that that I did with Dr. Christine Hall, looking at two years of data with Calgary Police Service. 26% of officers in physical combative encounters ended up injured on the street 26% of the time. And sometimes those injuries were pretty significant, causing an officer to go off duty for uh, extended periods of time, sometimes months, and in some cases, injuries that resulted in um, career-altering um, changes uh, would not uh, enable an officer to come back on the street. And, and the reason for that is, is just because of the nature, the high-risk nature of those dynamic, unpredictable encounters. So when we, we understand that and we think, well, we're, we, we need to train police officers to be able to manage effectively in those high, violent encounters, we will have uh, a certain amount of injuries during training. And now we, we should always strive to look at every injury we get in training, I would hope, has a very significant review by the training staff, by the management of the training section, and look at how did it happen, do a root cause analysis on it, and go, like you said, is it just one of the, is it a thing where an officer rolled an ankle and pulled some ligaments? Um, and but, but why did that happen? And so, for example, if we're doing training on mats, well, what, what are the mat types? Because we experienced a lot of ankle and knee injuries on certain types of mats that were too soft because the officer's footwear was not able to rotate quickly on the mat. It would sink in and then they couldn't rotate their, their foot. And so we were ending up with a lot of different types of ankle and knee injuries and when you do a root cause analysis and you find out why are these things happening, is there something that can be done about it? And should we change our training equipment? Should we change our safety equipment? Should it, could it be taught in a different way to make it more safe? And all of these things should be explored every time we have an injury in training. But as long as we understand at the end of the day, our goal should never be to say, well, we're striving for zero injuries because that's, that's just that's just not a, ever attainable. We should be looking at preventable injuries. Was it preventable? What was the root cause? And what do we need to do to make training safer for our officers? But I, I agree with you. One of the, the con most concerning trends that I see is to remove the, real, the realism of training in the training environment in order to reduce injuries. And this does the officer no favors, no favors. And in fact, when we take away the realism and the dynamics of force-on-force -force encounters in training, we have actually set the officer up for a catastrophic performance failure on the street. And I'm going to give you an example of this to make it realistic, because you, you mentioned this, and now you've got me on my soapbox. So this is a, this is a huge concern. I've had three cases now of carotid restraints being applied by members of a law enforcement agency, three separate instances where those carotid restraints were applied in, in properly, improperly, and during a violent encounter, the restraint transitioned into a respiratory restraint and resulted in two, two of the three cases in fatalities 
and in the third case, in uh, serious damages to the structures of the throat, the hyoid bone, the cricoid cartilage in the subject. And now you could look at that and on, on the face of it just say, oh, well, those officers just, they should have known better. They're trained to apply the neck restraint, uh, the carotid restraint. So it was just a poor application by the officer contrary to training. Well, no, hold on. Let's look at the training. In that particular agency, the officers in their training are not permitted to apply any compression of the neck restraint during training and their role players, their partners, when they're role playing, are not permitted to apply any level of resistance to the carotid restraint. So what you've done now if you, is you've created an entirely artificial, unrealistic training environment that will never, ever be replicated on the street because every time you go to apply a carotid restraint on a violent subject, there's resistance, there's struggle, and the officer needs to know to be able to recognize how to transition that restraint to keep it on properly so we don't get a, a respiratory restraint. Or if the resistance to the attempt is vigorous enough to, dis to abandon the neck restraint, to discontinue it, and to transition to something else. But you see, officers don't rise to the occasion. They fall to the level of, of their training every single time. And... So, and, and you look at, so why were, does this agency do that? Why don't they allow the officers to apply compression? Why don't they allow resistance and training? And it's specifically because of concerns of injuries in training. And I will tell you as a, as a national uh, LVNR, lateral vascular neck restraint trainer, I have taught neck restraint instructor courses for almost 15 years now and never had an injury in any of my courses and we get extremely vigorous at the end of the training very realistic dynamic combat full application of neck restraints and training and um but th this is a, a critical issue we cannot sterilize the training environment for police officers to the point where it's now so unrealistic that the training environment no longer looks anything like the operational environment. All the research on this, on human performance, shows that's just absolutely disastrous and it's irresponsible and it's negligent on the agency to do that. Yeah, it's kind of like giving somebody a gun and saying, but you're not allowed to practice shooting before you take it out into the field. <laughs> like... Uh, you got me all the, with the LVNR stuff. Now you got me all hyped up and going because obviously like I love jujitsu and it's interesting. And this has come up in the podcast, I think before as well, but we talk about applying these chokes. You don't know how to like, until you actually choke someone to unconsciousness, you don't realize how much force that you need to apply. And until you're being choked, you don't realize the, what it, what that feels like from the other side of things. And so when you're, when you're showing people how to apply a choke and you're not having them actually do any type of compression they're they are not in the field. I can, I can say without knowing any of these cases, it's like they obviously didn't apply the enough force at the beginning. And that's why you get so much movement in the subject, which leads to the forearm sliding across the center of the throat. And like, 
it's it's interesting and nobody teaches okay well if i have them in this correct position but it's not just that it's can i get them now where i can get a body triangle on them and control their con- entire body with my body and have complete control of them and then you because the main goal is compliance and and so it's so interesting when we talk about those types of training i think you should have jujitsu guys come in and teach this to, to everybody um, and be like, this is what being choked feels like and this is how to do it correctly because it is such an important skill. And to say that we shouldn't be teaching because there are agencies that say, nope, we don't, we're not teaching this. This isn't an approved technique. Um, there, That has to end because it is one of those things that can definitely save someone's life um, if, if you need to apply it. So, um, I mean, there's, we could talk about this for probably an hour itself, just, the the LVNR training because it is so important and I think you're absolutely right and I mean I don't want to get too much farther into it but I mean are there what what do you think is the best way to approach that from an agency training perspective what's the level that these agencies should be going when we talk about uh, LVNR stuff so you're asking me like what level of intensity and training should they be going to with yeah. restraints yeah so um, well. I, I think the correct way to approach that with those types of combative skills where they're, if they're not done properly, there's a high consequence of, of injury is to spend a lot of time on the individual key performance pieces of that skill. So for example, when I teach uh, LVNR application, I break it down in there's five critical individual motor skills that have to be done correctly every single time and maintained correctly every single time to ensure the safety of the technique for the subject. And so we spend a lot of time on those individual critical motor skills. We do a ton of repetition. I change the training environment, so I'll change the lighting. So, for example, if if we're doing the proper encirclement of the neck to get the proper chin position, we'll do a ton with cooperative subjects in good light and then I will turn the lights off in the training room. And now the officer applying it has to now apply it kinesthetically because they can't see it anymore. It's like see it visually. They can see it in, in their visual cortex as far as kinesthetics. But um, they have to learn the automaticity of applying that motor skill. And the more that we can, and this is just not with carotid restraint, by the way, it's with all motor techniques the more that we can make those critical, like I call them KPIs, key performance indicators of a skill, the more that we can make those KPIs automatic. So we drill the student and we get them to practice throughout the training to the point where we want that skill to require, to become automatic, reflexive, to require very little conscious uh, attention to the application of that skill. And then once you get to that point, now you begin to add complexity in the context. So making the context more realistic, we could start to add the changing of the positioning now. So we'll start applying the, say, the carotid restraint on a standing subject. And once you've got it on, you've got to take them down to to a kneeling position or down to a prone position on the ground. How do you now add that complexity and continue to build and build. And then once the trainer has seen the students are competent in all of that, 
Now start to add some more realism to it. Add a little bit of resistance from your subjects. Make sure the officers know how to maintain those key, uh, key performance indicators of the skill throughout all that change. I add in um, mini scenarios into the training. So, for example, if two individuals are in a fist fight as offenders and the officer has to come up from behind and pull one of them back, displace his balance, put him in a carotid or an LVNR restraint from the rear, now maintain that position, keep the position of the subject between you and the other subject, issue good verbal commands, control the threat environment, um, and, and you just continue to add complexity until you get to the point where you're satisfied as a trainer. You've replicated in a lot of ways the operational training environments that the officers are going to face on the street. And uh, now none of the scenarios that you will do in training will exactly be the same as what the officer is going to encounter on the street. But what you've done is you've set up a, a, a learning environment in the brain where it is able to transfer skills into novel situations because you've gone, you haven't left the training just at the motor skill piece of it. You've gone from motor skill into motor learning, into judgment-based, into context cue scenario type of training, and then that leaves the officer in perhaps the best position going forward out on the street to be able to use those skills in all those novel situations and incidents that the officer is going to encounter. Yeah, absolutely. And I just thought of the the topic that or the point that I was going to bring up prior to this um, with the you know injuries and training. But my thought came back to you know when we do OC spray, right? Officers get sprayed. When we do CEWs, officers get to experience that. But it's not very often that you have an officer experience getting punched in the face and having to continue on with the fight um, because that's that's a game changer. And I think everybody who's been punched and, and eaten a straight shot to the face knows, I mean, it. if you get rattled, it, it's a complete game changer. And that's something that people are very... Um, afraid to replicate in training, right? Very few times do you have um, two uh, students spar like sparring um, with gloves on, maybe with head protection or maybe not, but we're actually where they're actually taking shots to the point where you know maybe a nose gets broken, obviously maybe a black eye or two or something like that. And when we talk about that kind of injury in training, I mean it's it's almost like you think that's something that they should be because there's. I mean, this has been brought up tons of times before. It's, you know, sometimes officers are getting into policing that have never been in a fight before in their life. And now you're going to take them, put them out on the street through training where they still haven't really ever been in a fight before. And how important is that, that they get that real experience, um, both from a psychological and physiological perspective, so that they can kind of anticipate at least to a better degree of what they're really going to experience when they get into a fight. Yeah, I, I agree that, that's so important. You know, uh, I recently spoke with an officer who was uh, at, a, at a call with some unruly individuals and uh, somebody had managed to, to get in a position sort of off his flank and uh, sucker punched him and came up and sucker punched him on the, on the right side of his head. And uh, he recalled a period of basically shock, shock and disbelief 
that that had happened and trying to orient his brain. Like he said, he was almost like in this cognitive pause, which felt to him like forever because he just couldn't believe he just got punched and, and what, what that felt like. And, uh, and so I agree, you know, that in that particular case, fortunately the officer got right back in the game as quickly as possible and, and dealt with the issue. But, you know, if, we can have officers go into what's called code black, right? Where they just go into a neurological freeze and shut down because they're just, there's so much cognitive dissonance over this unbelief of what is happening to them because they've never experienced it before. And while, you know, we, we certainly can't have officers doing that on the street. So we do need to expose them in a very careful and strategic and professional way in training to those high stress violent contexts and uh and i i just will say um just for clarity that i am completely against um the abuse of of our officers and just beating beating them in training for the sense of beating them for the and justifying it to say well we're giving the this we're giving them the exposure to this context um that can do far more damage psychologically to the officer than good. But we do need to design our training to raise the realism, raise the violence to a realistic level that has a training purpose. And the the trainer knows how to deliver that knows when, how much to do, when to do it and when to stop and then how to debrief the officer to allow them uh, to succeed and 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 grow mentally, grow um, grow strong mentally from that. Um, because if it's done in the wrong way, I've I've just seen it where it's created massive problems psychologically for officers after after training. Um, but you mentioned one thing. That, so the injuries in training. I just want to go back to that one second because when you remembered what you wanted to say. I remembered something that I wanted to mention as well, and it's on um, the aspect of uh, exercise and the relationship of exercise to injuries in training. The first thing is we do see that one of the probably the most direct cause of officer injuries in training is a lack of fitness on the officers themselves. So where we try to teach officers a particular skill and we've got officers that are pulling hamstrings and straining backs and getting all kinds of injuries because they lack proprioception, they lack cardiovascular skill, they lack muscle tone to be able to even do the basic skills this is a very complex problem for agencies because trainers will get these recruits that have been hired for, and sometimes with reduced fitness standards and they'll, they'll come into the academy or, or it's even worse in service. You're very out of shape in service officers that end up getting injured and you can't even really teach them the skill because they're so out of shape. That, that's a big problem. And, and so officer fitness is a huge thing. But from a training perspective, one thing trainers can be careful about, Adam, is the, the 
the type of exercise that they're doing as part of the training regimen. And I mentioned briefly earlier about, you know, we've got to be careful not to push officers to the point of exhaustion and then go into some type of training, especially combatives training, after we've pushed them to exhaustion. Because when you look at, and we we examined this in, in the Calgary Police Service, we uh, looked at the relationship between exercise, the type of exercise, and when, when injuries were occurring and the type of injuries. And, and what we found is we had a lot of injuries that were occurring, like statistically. So of all our injuries and of our students, a large percent of, the, of those injuries occurred at points where we had pushed the officers to the point of exhaustion and then were continuing in doing some type of high-level physical combatives. And so you've got to be careful how you structure your training day so that you you want to, you know, if, if you're going to do some very high-intensity training and then the, the best way, if you want to minimize your injuries, is do once you've done that high-intensity training and you put really push the officers, is pull back. Now, teach some other type of a motor skill. Go into something else which is lower level, not not as force-on-force, force, not as dynamic, and especially near the end of the days. That's the other thing we found is a lot of our injuries were occurring at the end of the training day uh, after officers were both mentally and physically fatigued. We had a high percentage of injuries that were occurring. So the structure of it, the timing and the type of exercise is really critical. That's a great point. I love that. And I think that kind of would lead us down a whole nother rabbit hole on <laughs> when it comes to training. So I want to, I want to have you back on and I know there's going to be some collaboration that we're going to be putting together with something else that's coming up here very soon. Um, is there any last points with what we've talked about today when it comes to building out, you know, instructor training programs and things like that? Um, like how would you, how would you sum it up for everybody who's been listening to this? Yeah, I think, um, a good perspective to have for any trainer, no matter how much time you've had doing training, whether you're a new trainer or you've been doing it for years is really have a curious mindset and a high degree of self skepticism. Um, that's, I, I like, I like to call it that to have a high degree of self skepticism about what you know. Uh, because as you begin to, to really get into the science and research and you go outside of policing to these other fields and get exposed to this wealth of knowledge that's out there and that's available, what a lot of that will do is it will, it will directly contradict your implicit bias about what you think you knew and what you taught and how you taught it. So you need to have a humble, uh, a humble heart and a desire to always remember that your goal as a trainer is never about you. It's not about your ego. It's not about what you teach. It's about your students and always making them better. At the end of the training day, has every one of your students left better than when they came in? uh, Because it's all about the students and it will always ever only be about the students. If somebody wants to talk with you and bring you in to run this uh, four-day program or learn more about what you're doing, where can where can people go on uh, on the old interweb and where can they find you and get a hold of you? 
Yeah, they can get me a couple ways. So they can go to my website at uh, Raptor Protection. It's just www.raptorprotection, R-A-P-T-O-R, protection.com. Or they can email me directly at chris at raptorprotection.com. Either of those two ways will get directly to me. Awesome. Yeah. And I'm going to have those, obviously they're going to be attached to the show notes for this episode. So you can click those links just below um, in the show notes here. Chris, man, it's always so much fun to have you on and chat with you. And uh, I mean, we're going to be doing a lot more of this, so I'm excited for that. And uh, it's an honor as always to uh, have you on the show, man. So thank you. Oh, Adam, no, uh, thank you. Honestly, and thank you for what you do and your passion for, for advancing public safety and improving uh, our our first responder professionals. It's a pleasure to be able to work with you anytime. Thanks, man. I really appreciate that. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. All right. That wraps up another episode here on Tactical Breakdown. If you like what you're hearing, if you're enjoying the content and finding it actionable and useful, consider subscribing to the podcast. You're going to stay up to date on all of the current events with law enforcement training around the world. And if you haven't already heard about the International Law Enforcement Training Summit, you need to jump over to ILETSummit.com. Check that out. The live version is done and gone. That took place in July 2020. But you have the ability to get lifetime access to all of the training that's been developed for a very, very, very low price. Make sure to use the promo code BREAKDOWN to save even more. Check that out at ILETSummit.com. Thanks again for being here with us at the Tactical Breakdown. And until next time, stay safe. Produced and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.